Oh, well, hello there. Uh, just before we start, a very quick reminder, there's still a few days left in this season's crowdfunding campaign. Please go to the 9pmedic.com slash autumn2024 and check out the details. I'll have more to say about that shortly. The following episode of the 9pm Edict is unexpected. It contains strong language, excuses, politics, artificial intelligence, and shameless self-promotion. Saturday the 2nd of March 2024. Uh, This solo episode is definitely not an excuse to plug my current crowdfunder. Uh, Well, it's not just that. Certain things have been bugging me this week and I have some comments from you, dear listener, so let's just get on with it. Hello, I'm Still Gary and this is the 9pm Cheap Booze, Cheap AI, Chocolate-Free Disappointment. I don't know why I'm shouting there. Um, Actually, the main reason um, that I'm doing this episode, uh, rather than the one you were expecting, is that, well... Well, I did record a podcast with David F. Porteous last Saturday, um, but it's longer than I'd planned, uh, and I was drunker than I thought. Uh, So hat tip to listener Tom, who randomly encountered me in the old city bank in Katoomba and bought me wine and then bought me more wine and then a bit more wine. Uh, Hi, Tom. It was great to, to meet you. Uh, And also a hat tip to Hoshi Japanese Gin, a bottle of which I had handy when I got back from the pub, but before I started recording, because David Defportius is in Edinburgh, and because, well, because gin, basically, and because Saturday night, and because an empty stomach. So editing that podcast uh, is going to be a a bit of a challenge, um, and I'm going to tackle that in the coming days. Now, I should mention, now that I'm thinking about it, Hoshi Japanese Gin. It's not bad. It's made in Japan, it's bottled in the Netherlands, and it's available through all of the Coles-owned outlets in Australia, like Liquorland and First Choice Liquor and Coles Online and so on. And This reminds me of a really strange article that the ABC ran uh, a few days ago, uh, well, week before last, inside the shadow factories making alcohol for the big liquor chains. And that was headed with photographs of bottles of pure origin Tasmanian gin, which I quite like. Um, And they have a pink gin, a bramble gin, as well as a regular dry gin. It's it's perfectly fine Tasmanian-made gin. But this article is trying to make out that Coles is deceiving us in some way by making something that is packaged like a, a craft gin and it's won awards, but, oh, they're disguising it. It says, the only way you'd know its true origin is by turning over the bottle and finding the name of Coles Liquor subsidiary James Busby or by researching its trademark. Wow, the only way you'd find out it was owned by Coles is if you looked up and found it was owned by Coles. And they quote a spirit wholesaler, Kathleen Davies, who says she was initially confused when she bought it at Vintage Cellars, which is owned by Coles, 
And she said, I actually thought it was a small Tasmanian producer. And I thought, how could they do it that cheap? It was $64 a bottle where she bought it. They're mimicking small business and small spirit brands. It's like what? Because they have a nicely designed label and a, 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 a nice bottle. I mean, it says who they are making it. It is gin. It, it, when they say it is made in all-copper Tasmanian pot stills, I mean, it will be, right? doesn't say how many of them. That's the other thing you see when you, something's labelled small batch. It doesn't say how many small batches are happening at once. And it uses pure, pristine water from the slopes of Mount Wellington. Sure. It's gin. They used water and they distilled it in a copper pot. Exactly the same way that your fancy little craft brewery will do. What, what's your problem here? What is your problem here? In the case of Hoshi gin, sure, it's made in Japan. It's bottled somewhere else. It's sold in Australia and it happens to be sold through all of the Coles chains, but it is a Japanese gin. It's an adequate price. And when you start looking around at some of the other brands which people think are niche brands, well, here's an example. James Squire Beer, right, made by the Malt Shovel Brewery, and people think, oh, that's a little brewery in Camperdown and we're getting, you know, nice, nice small batch ales. No. James Squire's made in large quantities. The Malt Shovel Brewery is owned by Lion, which used to be Lion Nathan, which is a subsidiary of the Japanese conglomerate Kirin. Then they say, oh, the beer is named after the convict turned Australia's first brewer, James Squire, who became, you know, what's essentially a billionaire in, in today's money at that time because he became the official brewer for the colony of New South Wales. So what? He's not making it. It's not his family making it. It's not his recipes. They've just taken some dead convict and put his picture on the label. Oh, look, it's a small brewery. No, it wasn't. It was made by Chuck Hahn, who was, you know, Hahn Brewing... He wanted to do something a little more interesting, so they gave him the Malt Shovel Brewery to have a bit of a play with, and now it's in pubs all over the nation. Stone and Wood Brewing, okay? Uh, I love this because it was described by food blogger Cooksuck as the cold play of craft beer. It's terrible. Anyway, so Stone and Wood, founded by three blokes in 2008, all of whom used to work at Carlton and United Breweries. Okay, so they set this up. That was in 2008. 2021, Stone and Wood, its parent company is Fermentum. It's now 100% owned by Lion Australia, a subsidiary of Kirin in Japan. Right, Roku Gin, another Japanese gin that I quite like. I've been enjoying Japanese gins lately. Um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Owned by Suntory. You know, Suntory. Santori Horodigasu Holdings, Santori Holdings in Japan. Okay, Santori, they made whiskies back in the 1930s, I want to say. Oh, 1899 in Osaka, 125 years ago. Okay, Santori, they make whiskies. They also make gin, Roku being one of them. They make vodka, um, Haku being one of them. They make tequila, El Tesoro de Don Felipe, tequila made by Suntory. Uh, what else do they make? Uh, let's have a look at some of these. Oh, they make, they own Scotch brands. 
Ardmore, Orkintoshan, Glen Garlic, Lefrag. Lefrag Scotch is owned by Suntory. Canadian club, well, Canadian club, that's owned by Suntory. Uh, Beams, Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, Old Crow, these are bourbons, all owned by Suntory. And I come back to it, so fucking what? You know, the questions I think you need to ask here are, do you like it? Yeah, sure. Okay. Is it value for money? Yeah, sure. Is it made in North Korea using slave labour? Uh, uh, ooh, that's trickier. Probably not. Um, but all right, it isn't, so let's go with it. Uh, is it like your iPhone made in China, a country which also uh, is doing awful things to people in its northwestern province? Oh, let's, let's just skip over that. I'll, I'll just um, answer the call on my iPhone. Any, uh, answer the call on my iPhone. Who answers calls? Was, was it transported to you in a ship that runs on bunker oil? The objections people seem to have is it's bad if something comes from a large company. But this is literally why we had the industrial fucking revolution, right? It's so that we could get economies of scale, we could make nice things for lots more people at a much lower price, and we can all have a nice Japanese gin on the other side of the world at a nice price. And no one's forcing you to buy it. But people want it. And in this wonderful thing called a market economy, if people want things, they'll buy them. And then the people who make them uh, make money for their shareholders and they're happy too. I think so much of the, oh, we don't want to buy that because it's owned by Coles. We want to buy Krusty Joe's single batch gin made in a bucket in his bathroom is, is the hipster response. Oh, I found this thing which you don't know about and therefore I think it's good. And I've got, I mean, sure, we've all got to have a hobby. Some people build models of the Eiffel Tower using matchsticks. That's fine. It's not for me. But I think the automatic, oh, it's it's owned by a big company, therefore it's bad, really is, I think, a bit silly. Has the company done something bad in the process of making that? Like, has everyone been paid fairly for their labour? Have the suppliers of ingredients been paid a fair market price? Has no one been extorted or ripped off? Then fine. And it comes down to it, no one's forcing you to buy a less expensive gin from a large manufacturer. You can still pay more for a gin from a smaller manufacturer. And if you like that, good, off you go. This reminds me again of a wonderful bit for a, a, a stand-up comedy routine by uh, Takashi Wakasugi. Uh, this is from the last year's Melbourne International Comedy Festival. He's Japanese, as you might have guessed by the name, but now living in Australia. And he asked this question. Thank you. And I have a question in Australia. I went to a supermarket to get egg, right? And there was no free-range egg. It sold out. And only cage eggs was there. Right? The question is, can I buy that cage egg in the situation? Yeah. Are you listening? 
it's so confusing. I try to get, but that makes me worry. Maybe someone see me. And they might think, oh, this Asian guy is still buying cage egg. Get out. It's not good for the Asian community, right? So I got it, I got it, but I co cover my cage egg by other products. Then people cannot see my cage egg. I caged cage egg. It's double cage, so bad. And I apologize, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Okay, that's a slightly different question, obviously. That one's about whether you have particular standards, but under what circumstances are, are you able to or willing to drop those standards because, in this case, you need the eggs or you want the eggs or it would be convenient for you to have the eggs. Are eggs the same as gin? That's the question I'll leave you with right now. Actually, I wouldn't mind a gin about now. I don't have any alcohol with me today. That's why you need to support the crowdfunder. I have coffee. It's the middle of the afternoon. Uh, dear listener, for the last couple of days, I have been obsessed with the news about Willie's chocolate experience in Glasgow. Sure, Willy Wonka's chocolate factory is a world of pure imagination. There's no life I know to compare with pure imagination. But organizers who tried to recreate the colorful candy scene from the movie in what was advertised as Willie's chocolate experience more or less delivered a fire Festival cheese sandwich. My little girl, she's only four. She was dressed up as Willy Wonka and she, she did. She was quite disappointed. Parents and ticket holders like this dad were stunned to see what was promised, like in these ad photos, was anything but. Turns out the location in Scotland where this event was being held was sparsely decorated, a few balloons and things. My two oldest boys, they, they found it funny. They, they laughed at us. Organizers wrote an apology on Facebook that has since been deleted, saying they would offer refunds. This is Inside Edition Digital. The BBC also had a great explainer. Up in the lovely city of Glasgow in Scotland, one of my favourite places in this country, someone advertised a Willie's chocolate experience based on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So lots of people were bringing their kids and they were motivated to go to the event because an AI generating tool had come up with a beautiful poster that made it look like, like a candy, like a child's fantasy. So you really want to go and it's going to look like an immersive experience like those Van Gogh art exhibits that people go to where it's all around you. It looks mm. super fun. Alas, reality did not match expectations. When people showed up, it basically just looked like somebody had opened up a warehouse, put a couple of things on, stuck some stuff on the wall. Have we got, have we got that picture again? I know we just, we just had it up. Can we get the picture up again of what it... There we go. That's, that's what it actually looked like. Yeah. Okay, like I always do, I've linked to the news stories I'm using here. So check out the photos. Check out the original AI artwork. It's fantastic. Uh, Nine News here in Australia said... The advertising said there would be chocolate fountains, candy, projections, live performances, there would be audio and visual effects, oompa loompas to narrate children through the rooms, beginning with an enchanted garden. Uh, 
people had to pay around £35 for this. That's around 67 Australian dollars uh, for a one-hour or 45-minute to one-hour experience. Uh, but, yeah, it was just a bare and grey warehouse, uh, a few inflatable mushroom props around the place, uh, some photos, some posters of that chocolate factory were hung on, on some of the walls. It, I think it's amazing. And the kids got reportedly two jelly beans each and half a cup of lemonade. And the worst part of Willie's chocolate experience is that there wasn't even any chocolate. And the AI aspect of it, um, is it just that it is much easier, cheaper, quicker to produce what in, old, in, in olden days, in days of yore, would have taken a long time to produce, to produce a piece of art that that spectacular and, you know, that, that detailed? Is, is that the difference now? AI yeah. just makes everything easier and, more, and quicker. Yeah, you can just sort of elevate it and make it, you know, make it fashion, make it fun, make it fabulous, and it has to have no corresponding value to reality. So this opens up all sorts of exciting opportunities for scams and frauds, and indeed, the most shocking part of this entire story is that someone, we don't know who, called the police. Well, yeah, because apparently it was, uh, <laughs> well, it's Glasgow, mate. I mean, violence is but a heartbeat away in that city. I know that's that's terribly cliched, but in this case, there were some pretty angry parents there and the whole thing was shut down. Wired has an interview with Paul Connell, who's the actor who played Willy Wonka. No, not, not Willy Wonka. Let's be clear. The BBC got it slightly wrong there. It was not a Willy Wonka experience. It was a Willy's Chocolate Factory experience. And Paul Connell played a character called Willy McDuff. Definitely not Willy Wonka. Uh, and they were not Oompa Loompas. They were wonky doodles. And I love that Paul Connell has just stepped into this. It's clearly, I mean, he does stand-up comedy too. He's got his Edinburgh show worked out this year, True Confessions of Willie Macduff or something. Um, there's some photos in the Wired story showing this very sad woman with some chemistry equipment. You know, it looks a bit like a meth lab. Uh, Wired asked Paul Connell what, what she was doing and what's her purpose. And he says, yeah, I think she was asking herself the same question. It was meant to be a, a laboratory where the magical beans are made. She was actually doing science, you know, creating the magical beans. Uh, I, I do know it looks like a meth lab, but you just don't know how magical beans are made, you know. And there was smoke coming from? What was that? And Connell just says, oh, something was probably on fire. No, I, I do think they had a smoke machine, but there was one point where we did smell burning and we were worried that something was on fire. I, I kept saying throughout the day, someone's going to get hurt. There was a bouncy castle on a concrete floor. How no kid just went bounce smack is beyond me. And when they asked what uh, Billy Cool was doing, he CO. U double L, Billy Cool. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, what was he doing? And and Paul just says, well, he was walking around in circles. Uh, he was just running around, um, just appearing out of nowhere and whispering in my ear, like you're spending too much time with the kids because they had to move them through every forty five minutes, right? And then disappearing. It's look, look it up. I'm loving it. It's hilarious. Uh, as someone who was connected with the kind of dance party and rave scene at the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. I always loved it when some new promoter completely 
oversold what they were actually putting on. You know, oh, we're having this many intelligent lights and this DJs and these effects and these, that, and you got to a scummy fucking shed somewhere with a couple of strobes or whatever. This is it, but it's in Glasgow. It's a chocolate factory without chocolate at all. And I, I think that the real kicker for me is that the the organisation who put it on was the House of Illuminati, the global organisation that runs everything in secret really has gone downhill. Uh, the clips from the BBC I played there are, are from uh, their kind of weekly wrap of uh, news about artificial intelligence. And what I found amazing, another bit of news, uh, is that Laurie Anderson, well, Laurie Anderson, here's what they said. We begin with the independent and artist and musician Laurie Anderson, who confesses she's addicted to using an artificial intelligence text generator to emulate the words of her late husband, the rock star Lou Reed, a decade after his death. Yes, uh, there is a Laurie Anderson-created Lou Reed chatbot. Uh, this relates to an exhibition that's on at the Adelaide Festival, as it happens, uh, kind of now Ish. I've linked to a piece in The Guardian uh, interviewing Laurie Anderson. It's called I'll Be Your Mirror. Uh, and uh, this coming Wednesday, 6th of March, she's apparently doing an in-conversation event via a live stream because she can't be asked turning up. Uh, but, yes, uh, in one of these experiments, uh, which not this one, but, but some years ago they were at the uh, University of Adelaide's Australian Institute for Machine Learning. Remember that? Before we called it artificial intelligence. And then before that it was machine learning and then before that it was artificial intelligence and before that it was giant computer brains. Go back and listen to the episode I did with Professor Toby Walsh. Well, you should have listened to it already. But if you knew, go back. Lots of good stuff about AI. Anyway, in one of those experiments back uh, in 2020, they fed a huge cache of Lou Reed's writing, songs, interviews into the machine and now you can chat with it and it's, yeah, I don't uh, Anyway, she says she's addicted to it, which is a bit of a worry and most of the time it, it's not really him and you can tell it's not him. Uh, some of you who watch the uh, science fiction anthology series Black Mirror will remember from 2013, more than a decade ago, the episode Be Right Back, Series 2, Episode 1, I think, uh, which uh, tells the story of a young woman whose boyfriend is killed in a car crash. As she's mourning him, she discovers that there's technology that now allows her to communicate with an AI, imitating him based on all of their private messages and social media posts and so on, and she gives it a try. Good episode, actually. Be right back. It's called Part of Black Mirror. Look that up. I suppose I have to point out, I've got to kind of link this in somehow. Of course, Laurie Anderson crossed over into the pop music world uh, with her song. It's a virus. By observing that language is now just a neural network running on a, a large computer somewhere in the cloud. Very disappointing. Good luck getting over that, Ms. Anderson.
Before we go any further, I want to pass on some news uh, which is not good news. Um, it's quite upsetting news, in fact. Uh, but I think it's it's something that listeners to this podcast, most of you anyway, will, will want to hear. Um, friend of the podcast, John Kadelka. He was on it last time in October, just a few months ago. Uh, you will know him as a cartoonist and artist and all-round good person. Uh, news has come through... Uh, that he is not well, and uh, last weekendish, uh, he said he'd heard that his indisposition had been announced on national TV, so he posted to clear things up. He says, and I quote, it's an inoperable stage four glioblastoma. That's a very aggressive brain cancer. Stage four, uh, I'm interpolating now, Stage four means it's spread to other parts of the body. As he said, it's inoperable. And now back to his words, can't be fixed, starting chemo and radio to slow the bastard down this week, which is in the last few days. Please do not share your horror stories. I am not in the mood. Cheers. I'll leave you to look up for yourselves um, how serious this condition is. And uh, I'm sure that you'll join me in passing on our, our best wishes to John Kadelka in Hobart. As for this podcast, yes, it's the housekeeping time. Uh, as I indicated, the, the next episode will be uh, with David F. Porteous, uh, the Scottish author and social researcher and interesting chap. Uh, I did record it last weekend. I will be getting on to the editing in the next couple of days. And then after that, uh, the final episode in the summer series, yes, summer has been continued into March. I have declared it. That is my edict. March 2024 will officially be part of summer. So to wrap up the summer series, uh, Professor Johanna Weaver uh, former cyber diplomat, she used to represent Australia at the United Nations uh, on matters relating to the cybers. Uh, she's now head of the Tech Policy Design Centre at ANU and she presents her own podcast, Tech Mirror, reflecting on technology and society. We are recording soon, Friday I think, from memory. But if you're a supporter uh, with trigger words or a conversation topic for that episode, you need to get them to me by Wednesday night. That's Wednesday the 6th of March uh, by about, I'll call it 8pm, Australian East I, Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, just get them to me by Wednesday. Uh, and then that episode will appear the following week, around the 12th of March, I think. And that will wrap up the summer series. Uh, this episode, well, this episode was just me off riffing off that. But, yes, uh, thank you for that episode. All, all these uh, to all of you who contributed to the uh, summer series crowdfunding campaign. You're all listed on the podcast website. I love you all. I really do appreciate your support. Uh, and, and this is a reminder that uh, the Autumn Series crowdfunder is underway. That's the 9pm Autumn Series 2024. That's to fund more special guest episodes of this podcast, uh, ones with Snarky Platypus or just me don't count as part of that total. Uh, but at the time of recording, we're 30% of the way to target one and there's uh, five days to go. It finishes this Thursday, the 7th of March at 9pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah, five days away. So please, 30% of the way there with five days to go. We do need to get that um, graph going up into the right a little bit faster. So please go to the 9pmedic.com slash autumn2024. That's the 9pmedic.com slash autumn2024. Please do it. Well, why not right now? Pause the, the thing and do it or do it in the next five days. Or if you miss that deadline at any time, go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. That actually gets to me sooner and with lower fees. So, you know, do that. Um, do the do the other thing. Just, just do it. please support this podcast. Um, that's what makes my life possible while I'm doing this bullshit. The 9pmedic.com slash autumn2024. I am very pleased uh, to have received some feedback from you, dear listener, uh, this week. Well, from two of you anyway, and some comment. Uh, first of all, you may recall that in the episode with Justin Warren, we ended up responding to the trigger word humidity, and we got a little bit confused uh, because this is this is a bit of what happened. I was looking at the, the bomb app on my phone, and it was – Saying that somewhere somewhere around two a.m. the humidity was going to be one hundred percent, which mm. I would have thought that that basically means you're in the bath or a flood is occurring. Is it well, apparently not? No, well, it means the air holds as much humidity as much water as it can. So here I am in the Blue Mountains, uh, and it's an extremely overcast day with uh, a low cloud base. I happen to be sitting at an altitude of 850 metres, and currently uh, the humidity is 99% because when I look out the window, we are currently inside a cloud. Ah, and okay. clouds clouds by definition uh, are... Wet? Wet, mm. yeah. Humidity, yes. So, I assume that means that there was cloud on the ground... At two a.m., which would have been difficult to see because it was dark, um, or at least, know. well, oh, see, here's the thing: because the water droplets come out, can it just be saturated air, but not forming the kind of droplets that's a cloud? We're I should get a meteorologist an, on. Yeah, we're getting. I was just saying, we're getting into an area that I am not qualified to talk about. Mm. Um, but yes, I personally am not a big fan of humidity. Um, mm -hmm. Cold hair can't hold moisture, so I I enjoy being in a more subtropical area that, or Mediterranean, I think we used to be down here in Victoria. Okay, uh, putting aside the issue that cold air can't hold water, which is not true, Justin. Uh, Oliver Townsend, hi Oliver, uh, sent in a contribution uh, uh, because he was, well, I, I assume he was upset or at least annoyed or at least wanting to be helpful uh, by correcting us. And Oliver says, Humidity is the percentage of water as a gas in the air compared to how much the air can hold at a given temperature. Right, so air that is 100% humidity still looks like air. It just has all of the gaseous water in it that it can hold. He goes on to say, fog is liquid. Yes, clouds, that's droplets of water which form. Okay, Oliver then says, I've spent $50 to tell you this, but I kind of owed it to you. 
Uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Oliver. Uh, you you don't have to pay to give me feedback, although obviously that is good. Uh, yes, humidity. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, I also got a long comment on on the elephant site, Mastodon, from Mark Newton, friend of the pod, friend of me, uh, who uh, was inspired by the 9pm edicts episode with the platypus on the ABC television series Nemesis about our last uh, three coalition prime ministers, Mr Tony Abbott, uh, Mr Malcolm Turnbull and Mr Scott Morrison. And Mark says, i got to say, and he got to say quite a few things. He says, um, and I'll paraphrase this uh, into spoken English, he says the sheer magnitude of stuff that consumed everyone's attention at the time, but now, several years later, we don't even remember. Uh, that should give a lot of commentators uh, pause for thought. An important but sort of appreciated life skill is being able to distinguish between a hole above the waterline and a hole below the waterline. He's, he's using a ship metaphor, dear listener. Virtually nothing above the waterline truly matters. Sure, if you, you want to patch it up so it doesn't become a, a real problem later, but you don't need to give it undivided attention. The things we remember and which eventually led to uh, the protagonist's undoing were the holes below the waterline. Robo-debt, the vaccine program, the coal-fucking there's an image, the endless compulsion to lie and dissemble, their indifference to suffering, the dark, thick, syrupy ochre surging through their black hearts. They're the things that matter that we remember nine years later. For the previous government, the existence of Tony Abbott was a hole above the waterline. So was the internecine squabbling between their tediously boring factions. Allowing Scott Morrison to get pre-selection in 2007 that was a hole below the waterline, dead set lethal. That one decision has fucked them for years to come. On Morrison addressing his horrific misogyny by saying he meant well but was misunderstood, well, people think politicians run the country, but they don't. That's the Australian public service. Politicians have one role, which is to change the country to align with their vision. And this is why Wyatt Roy's criticism about Tony Abbott having no vision was so significant. Look, I think from my conversations with Tony, he clearly understood what he was against. But, I mean, there were many occasions when I said to him, um, what is your vision for Australia and where do you want to take the country? And he treated that as a trick question almost and did struggle to answer that question, which... Uh, I think for me was a very disappointing situation because fantastic to have the clear sense of what you were against, but you do, as Prime Minister, I think, have to have a sense of what you are for and where you want to take the country. To continue uh, Mark Newton's comments, about 5% of driving change is legislating it in the parliament. The other 95% is all about persuasion and consultation and discussion and leadership. Here's my vision. Here's why I think it's good. Here's how I'm going to persuade you to get behind it. That's it. Almost the entirety of a politician's job is communication via broadly understood language. So when Morrison says he meant well but was misunderstood, that means he failed to communicate, which is him admitting that he sucked at his job. And perhaps more should have been made of that admission at the time. And, and I agree, Mark, throughout Nemesis, Scott Morrison was just continually 
complaining he was misunderstood. Or actually, as James Henstridge uh, said in that thread on, on Mastodon, he didn't just say he was misunderstood. He said his statements were manipulated. That is, he's claiming that others intentionally misrepresented his words. And that seems to feed into his narrative that everything was someone else's fault and everything he did was good and proper. Well, Mark responded to that by saying, well, he had a pulpit, several, to correct any record he wanted whenever he wanted. A skilled politician could not only do that, but also anticipate the behaviour of his opponents and neuter them preemptively, and he couldn't. Morrison's biggest disability was that everyone knew what he stood for and he communicated it loudly. <sighs> yeah, he didn't. I don't hold a hose, mate. I don't hear this. It's all, it's all your fault. It's all you. Oh. You're right. Thanks, Mark Newton, for that. If you haven't listened to that uh, episode on Nemesis, a lot of people have said to me, people, people are saying, I, I should in, insert Trump voice here, uh, that they found it useful rather than watching four and a half hours of television. It gave them a kind of a bit of a snapshot of it. Thank you for your input, people. I want to wrap up this episode uh, with two things. The first is uh, another bit of a whinge about artificial intelligence because, of course, there's always something to complain about here. And according to futurism.org.com, doesn't matter which one I've linked to it, uh, Wikipedia no longer considers CNET a generally reliable source after AI scandal. Uh, so here's the thing. CNET was the stablemate of ZDNet, the two extremely long-lasting online uh, tech news outlets. In fact, they were originally competitors back in the 1990s. Uh, and then eventually were both uh, bought by CBS Interactive, same as, you know, the television network in the United States. I think I've got the order of things right. Uh, and certainly they were owned by uh, CBS when I started writing for them 15 years ago. Um, as you may know, uh, they closed their Sydney office, gee, a year and a half ago, about that. Uh, uh, after they had been bought by Red Ventures, which is a, a venture capital company that had a lot of mastheads. And kind of CNET and ZDNet really didn't kind of seem to fit because whereas CNET and ZDNet were doing actual, you know, journalism, uh, the rest of their sites were, you know, uh, syndicated sports results or mortgage choice things or what's the current best credit card deal and all of that kind of stuff. Well... Uh, actual journalism costs money, right? So Red Ventures started doing less and less and less of it. And then uh, a few months back, it was revealed that uh, many of the, those kind of articles were written by AI. And obviously people were less and less, even less and less interested in reading that stuff. Uh, so... Red Ventures is now wanting to sell CNET, but they're having trouble uh, buying. Uh, they're having trouble, rather, finding someone who wants to buy it because the price is way down and its reputation is fucked. Because people now don't know, like, is this is this a real story? So there is uh, a staff union at CNET, and they're saying, well, they're trying to repair the damage caused by management and restore CNET's reputation. But currently, 
Wikipedia is now saying any articles written in, in that period, yeah, we're not counting them as a reliable source. There's going to be a bit more of that, I think, from Wikipedia in the future as, as just more and more shit is out there. I don't know what that means for us, the consumer, if this stuff's not labelled. I suppose that's really why we need to disclose when AI has been involved in writing stories and not just something at the fine print saying, oh, some of the material on this website is written by AI, but... No, on, on the actual pieces. Um, there's a quote, uh, this is from the website formerly known as Twitter last year from Ursula Dorada, uh, who, although she says she didn't invent this line, but it's, I'll paraphrase again, why should we bother reading something if you couldn't even be bothered writing it? And I, I think that's down to it, right? Uh, and this fits in nicely to a story from... A uh, friend of the pod, uh, Cameron Wilson at Crikey, who's discovered that. Uh, okay, so what you can do now is uh, Chat GPT, which is the product from OpenAI that people are most. I think I think you've all heard of it by now because more than a billion people around the planet use it, which is a frightening thought. There is now a store, a Chat GPT store, where people are selling customized AI bots for particular purposes. That's another story for a whole nother time. I might get Cam on to talk about that. But in Australia, chatbots are now being used to give migration advice. So apart from the fact that you're meant to be a licensed migration agent to give migration advice and and a chatbot cannot hold a license because it's not a human, uh, people are using these chatbots to help them migrate to Australia and, of course, sometimes the information is incomplete or wrong and that ends up costing these people hundreds if not thousands of dollars to sort out their paperwork mess. That's This is the, the tip of the iceberg, as the phrase goes, for the kind of bullshit we're going to have to put up with over the next couple of years as more and more AI bots are, are used to give shit advice. Uh, Air Canada was recently caught out because they were using a chatbot to give advice and in one case someone uh, was looking up, okay, you offer free or discounted flights for people you know, going to funerals, bereavement flights, uh, and the chatbot gave me incorrect advice on how to, how to do that and now you won't give me my, my refund uh, and a court did decide, no, no, the chatbot wasn't some separate entity. That was you giving that advice through your website. You have to deal with this this person's problem. Sigh. Uh, as you may know, I do a now a Friday newsletter called The Weekly Cybers, which is about uh, what Australia, or the Australian government at least, is doing with technology in the cyber realm, the digital realm. I'm, I'm toying with the idea of, uh, doing a companion one about AI. Uh, if you think that's a good thing, uh, let me know. If you are an editor, a commissioning editor, who thinks your masthead should have me doing this, um, well, I'm available. And the second thing I wanted to wrap up with is, well, okay, it is AI-ish. Apple Music. Uh, I find its recommendation engine is is really quite good. Every now and then I, I listen to some East Asian music from China or uh, Taiwan or Japan or 
wherever. And Apple Music can then send me down a rabbit hole of similar music and I'm really enjoying it. And, in fact, I discovered through this process a Taiwanese prog rock or art rock band called Boys With Big Cock. So two very quick points there. One is I'm thinking of getting a proper music license for this podcast. It'd only be a few hundred dollars a year, and that would allow me to uh, like play full tracks and talk about them without anyone giving me any grief because the music is being properly licensed. And two, look for that band in the music apps because I tell you what, if you just go on Google and 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 search for Boys with Big Cock Taiwan, you're going to get very, very different material. Well, that's all the edict for now. Uh, like, subscribe, do all of that shit. Please, more importantly, just tell your friends about the podcast. Encourage them to listen. Choose an episode you think they might like. Uh, and remember that the website has links to all of the things we talk about and the credits and, and, and such. I really want, in fact, need you to support the Autumn series, the 9pmedic.com slash autumn2024. The next episode will be in a few days with David F. Porteous. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.